Welcome to the teaching and preaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. Well, Chuck was right. We had to go deep into the bench today. Someone said, I guess you drew the short straw. And I said, actually, it was the only straw. There's nobody left. <laughs> but that's the way it is sometimes. You know, we're, uh, we're without bulletins, so that's probably a good time to uh, make a little commercial here for notebooks. Um, it's a good thing to have, just a, just a way to take notes and keep those organized in your own um, in your own library. Pray with me, would you? The psalmist says, "Teach me, O Lord, the ways of your statutes, and I will observe it to the end." Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and do not, and, and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Father, that is our prayer this morning as well. Would you teach us your ways? Teach us through the scriptures. Teach us by your spirit and enlighten us. Illuminate our hearts to the truths which will be taught this morning. Give us understanding. Give us understanding in such a way that we can obey those, not with, with grief, not with misery, but with joy and with gladness. For we delight in your word, and we delight to hear your word preached and taught. And so, Lord, would you open our hearts, even now, as we uh, dive into your word and cause us to be um, just renewed in our spirit, as to how we live for Christ. So give us that energy and desire to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, I'm, I'm going to be preaching out of John chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to that. If you don't, there's Bibles in the pew rack right in front of you. If you forgot your Bible, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles there as well. And I would just say, take one if you need one. It's our gift to you. So John chapter 3. You know, in recent years, it's become really popular for athletes who profess to be Christians to display their favorite scripture verses uh, on their helmets, on wristbands, on the sides of their shoes, and even their skin in the form of tattoos. Now, we can debate the merits of the effectiveness of these verses and where they place them. We might even ask, why did they do it? What's the purpose of it? What benefit do they think that it's going to have? And maybe, in reality, it serves as an encouragement to the person who wrote them, as a reminder of who they serve. And maybe it's, it's even some kind of tool that they can use uh, in terms of starting a conversation about the Lord and to witness to a, a person. But long before athletes were writing on their uniforms or even their bodies, the fans of sporting events had been doing this for years. Most of you remember the photo of a guy who, who was in a crowd and he had this giant afro. 
And the afro was dyed red and yellow and green and purple. And he carried a sign. And do you remember what the sign read? John 3.16. You guys remember that? Unquestionably, the most famous of all Bible verses, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. Well, why is that? Why is that verse so familiar? Why is that verse so universally accepted among believers and unbelievers alike? Well, maybe it's the universal love that God has for the world. Maybe that's what appeals to them. Or that God is a loving and a giving God. Or maybe it's simply just the promise of just believe. And I suppose in one sense, I guess we could say it's, it's all of those. But the question is not why is that verse so popular? Why is that verse so familiar? Why, do so many, why does it appeal to so many people? The real question is, what did Jesus mean when he said that? Because the reality is it doesn't matter what it means to you. It doesn't matter what it means to me. What matters is, what does it mean? And hopefully, by the end of this morning, you'll know the answer to that. So, if you found your place in John chapter 3, stand with me if you would, and as I read, I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'll read through verse uh, 21. Now, there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews that came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered, and he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed." But he who practices the truth comes to light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought by God. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Well, just from the reading of that text, and obviously a very lengthy text, you can begin to see the many different directions that we could go with this particular Passage. So rather than take this thing apart into tiny little pieces and then try to reassemble it all back together again, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take it in just larger sections. In fact, two sections 
in, in particular, while at the same time just maintaining the perspective of this conversation, because it is a conversation, right? This is a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, a conversation between a teacher of an apostate religion who saw works as the road to God and another teacher who is the creator of the universe, between an unbeliever and the uncreated. Pretty stark contrast. So I want to divide this then into two sections. The first one is in verses 1 through 10, and we're going to call that the sovereignty in salvation. And then section number 2 will be verses 11 through 21, and that is the responsibility in believing. So section 1, the sovereignty of regeneration. This story begins with the introduction of a man whose name is Nicodemus. But the story actually begins before that. It actually begins at the end of chapter 2. Listen to what John writes. He says in verse 24, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in a man. And then we see Nicodemus one of those whom John was referring to, one of those whom Jesus knew what was in this man's heart. He tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He tells us that he was a Jewish ruler. In other words, Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, you may know, is a powerful group. They consisted of actually 71 members and were given authority by the Romans to arrest, to conduct trials, in things ranging from civil to criminal, even to religious matters. Clearly, Nicodemus was a very powerful man, which probably exp explains why he came to Jesus at night. If people saw him with Jesus, they might conclude that he approved of Jesus in some way, and certainly he wouldn't have wanted the members of the council to think that. Plus, it would have been much easier to have a conversation without the interruption of the crowds during the day. And so he comes to him at night. And then he addresses Jesus and he calls him rabbi, which is ironic because this is exactly who Nicodemus was. He was a rabbi. And so Nicodemus is addressing Jesus as an equal. He is equal to him. So it seems pretty apparent to me that he doesn't have the same hostility towards Jesus that the others did. Because he's, he openly admits to Jesus, albeit without crowds around, but at night he openly admits that he was a teacher who was sent from God. Now that's borne out by the fact that he says, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So there is some, some friendliness that Nicodemus has towards Jesus. But you'll notice right after Nicodemus says that, Jesus doesn't engage in a discussion about signs and about miracles. I mean, think about this. Why wouldn't he use that as, as maybe a springboard to talk about his deity, to, to have a conversation about it? I mean, Nicodemus may believe that Jesus is from God, but shouldn't he know that Jesus is God? Well, the short answer is yes, he should know that, and he needs to know that, but not now. Not now, because for now, Jesus is dealing with Nicodemus, the man. He's dealing with Nicodemus and his heart, and he wastes no time as Jesus makes this jaw-dropping statement in verse 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, he says. The old translations say, verily, verily. Uh, the word is amen, amen. And you know what that word means. We say amen or amen when we, when we approve of something. It's, it's a way of saying, may it be so. Uh, it's, it's an affirmation. It's an acceptance of a statement. And it has the same meaning here when Jesus uses it, except with a twist. And the twist is this, that Jesus says this before he makes a statement, not at the end. 
We're, we're familiar with saying amen at the end of a statement. Jesus prefaces his statement by saying amen. He's saying, Nicodemus, what I'm about to say, it is true. It is to be accepted. It is to be affirmed. In other words, what Jesus is not saying to Nicodemus is this. Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Would you agree with that, Nicodemus? Jesus is not saying that. This is not up for a vote. This is not up for debate. Jesus has settled this. He doesn't need Nicodemus. He doesn't need anyone else, for that matter, to approve his statement. Jesus validates it from the heart, from the start. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you. This is an important statement. And what is this truth statement? It is this, that the only way to see the kingdom is to be, and to be a part of it, is to be born again. Now this is exclusive language that Jesus is using here. John Calvin says this, by the phrase born again is expressed not the correction of one part, he says, but the renovation of the whole nature. This is not addition. This is not Nicodemus adding something to his religion that he has. Now, he doesn't realize this yet. Nicodemus doesn't, but he's about to. But for now, he's wrestling with this, with this phrase, born again, trying to understand what Jesus means by that. In verse 4, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Nicodemus is asking the question, and I, and I ask myself, is it possible? Is it possible that Nicodemus is so disconnected that he doesn't understand what Jesus is saying, that he really thinks Jesus is saying that you have to be physically reborn? I mean, Nicodemus is a smart guy. I don't think that's what Nicodemus is asking. What Jesus is telling Nicodemus is that being part of the kingdom of God is not your religion plus something else. Nicodemus, you have to start all over. You have to start from the beginning. Your first quote-unquote birth into religion counts for nothing. One thing is clear. Nicodemus is confused. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus something must happen that is humanly impossible. You must be born again. And if that's true, then where does that leave Nicodemus? Because Jesus is not giving Nicodemus an easy pass to get in. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, just believe. That's it. Just believe and you're in. No, instead, he gives him a pathway that is literally impossible. You have to be born again. He's trying to get Nicodemus to see that he is spiritually bankrupt. Really in the same way that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He was being called, Nicodemus was, to abandon everything that for years he had trusted in. But Jesus isn't finished. Far from it, actually. He comes right back at him again and he says, verse 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, wait a minute. Is Jesus adding to what he just said in verse 3? Is he adding another requirement? Is the requirement now for salvation, you must be born again, but you also must be born of the water and the Spirit? So is there more then to this than just being born again? Or maybe, maybe these two statements are related. Maybe these two statements run parallel with each other. In fact, that's exactly what they do. The imagery that Jesus uses is not unfamiliar imagery to Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have known exactly what Jesus was saying when he said this. Because it's likely Jesus was referring to Ezekiel chapter 36, what was read this morning earlier at the beginning of our time together. He says in verse 24 of Ezekiel, For I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the lands, and I will bring you into your own land. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So this is a reference, isn't it, to spiritual cleansing. That's what he's referring to here, the water that he refers to, brought about by a rebirth, this new spirit that Ezekiel is speaking of. And Nicodemus would have been very, very familiar with that analogy. And just to make his point even more clear, in verse 6, he contrasts the flesh and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, he says. Spirit gives birth to spirit. This is the difference. This is the difference between human effort and divine transaction. The difference between man-made religion and divine regeneration. And Nicodemus has been in a religion of the flesh all of his life. Jesus makes it clear. Fleshly, man-made religion will never intersect with the spiritual. They can't because they're running in opposite directions. You can imagine the amazement on the face of Nicodemus. This is almost too much for him to take in, which is why Jesus says in verse 7, do not be amazed. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. You must undergo a complete spiritual transformation, Nicodemus. And your old religion is going to be of no use to you. Now, maybe it's at this point that Nicodemus is thinking, well, how can I get this spiritual rebirth? What do I have to do to get this? Well, that's the wrong question, isn't it? You can't plan your salvation. It's not a matter of determining what you do and when you do it. Salvation is a divine gift. This is God's timing. This is God's terms. Verse 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. And he says, So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So listen, this is your story. This is my story as well. Every person ever converted can say the same thing that Jesus said in verse 8. I've often told people when talking to them about my own conversion that I, I don't know exactly when I was converted. I, I really don't. But I see the evidence of the blowing wind, but I never saw the wind. So it is, he says, with everyone born of the Spirit. And then Nicodemus says something that I think even surprises Jesus. He, Nicodemus said this, how can these things be? How can these things be? Jesus, I think, was astonished at this. He was taken back because in the next verse it says, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of the law or a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? How is it that you can be a teacher and this is totally foreign to you? Could it have been that Nicodemus had spent his entire religious life in darkness. You say, well, he's not a believer because the Spirit hadn't regenerated him, right? And that would be true. The Spirit had not done his regenerative work. In order to enter the kingdom, you must be born of the water and Spirit. You must be born again. He says that. It's a, it's a supernatural. It's a divine transformation that produ that's produced by the Spirit and not man. And that had not happened to Nicodemus. So then, the question is, can he be held accountable? Is he guilty of something that's completely out of his control? And the answer is yes, which brings me to the second point in verse, starting in verse 11. Because the Spirit had not done a regenerative work in the heart of Nicodemus. He still had a heart of stone. But listen, this was not Nicodemus's biggest problem. Jesus says in verse 11, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we have seen, and listen, here's the key, you do not accept our testimony. That's the key. If I told you earthly things, he said, you do not believe. How will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Listen, Nicodemus will not go to hell because the Holy Spirit did not cause him to be regenerated. Are you listening to me? If Nicodemus goes to hell, it's because he rejected the testimony of Jesus. In a word, Nicodemus would go to hell because of unbelief. Jesus said, I told you and you didn't believe. We spoke and you didn't accept. This is the ultimate problem for Nicodemus. This is his problem. And church, this is the ultimate problem for everyone who ends up in hell. Unbelief. They will be there, not primarily because they weren't regenerated, but because of their unbelief. They have no one to blame but themselves. And the same applies to Nicodemus. Now, people in hell will certainly accuse God, and people on earth accuse God of not choosing them. To them, God will say, you are here because of unbelief. You were told the truth, but you wouldn't accept it. To the Jews, Jesus said, you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. In other words, they were in unbelief. Same thing. For Nicodemus, his unbelief, it's actually at two levels. There's an intellectual level, there's a, there's a spiritual level. From the intellectual standpoint, he could accept Jesus as a good teacher, but not as God. Nicodemus may be saying, how can this be? I don't understand this. But what he's really saying is, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Beloved, listen, the reason people are in hell is not because they don't understand. It's not because they don't have enough information. Let me say it again. The reason people are in hell is for one simple reason, unbelief. They are accountable for that. And then from a spiritual standpoint, he was unwilling to admit his sinfulness. Nicodemus was a proud Pharisee, a proud Pharisee, an elite, self-righteous leader of Israel. And the people held him on a pedestal. And so for him to admit that he was in spiritual darkness and that he needed spiritual light, well, that was just more than he could handle. And by the way, this is not just the testimony of Jesus to Nicodemus. Notice the words that Jesus uses. He says, we speak, we know, and we testify. Well, who's we? Well, there's no indication that he's referring to the Trinity, but that would be true though, wouldn't it? He could be referring to that, but I think it seems that he's referring more than likely to the disciples and to John the Baptist for sure, the ones who were giving testimony on earth about him. In fact, what I think Jesus is doing is he's contrasting the point that Nicodemus made back in verse two. Look back there. Nicodemus says, Rabbi, we know. We know that you come from God. And then in verse 11, Jesus says, you do not accept our testimony. The you is plural. It's plural. In other words, he's not just accusing Nicodemus. He's accusing all the Jews. He's accusing all the Jewish leaders, but especially the leaders that Nicodemus was referring to in verse 2, the we. Then Jesus makes what seems like a really strange statement. He says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What is that all about? I mean, let's, let's be honest. You're thinking, what about Lazarus? Lazarus was... He had died, he went to heaven, he came back to life, went to heaven again after he finally died. And what about the graves of those who were, who were opened up at the crucifixion? Same thing, right? They died, they went to heaven, they came back, they went to heaven again. Do, do these people ascend to heaven, then return to earth, and then back to heaven? 
Well, yeah, they apparently did. So then, why would Jesus say this? Why would he say this if that's the case? Well, first, because ascending and descending to and from heaven is humanly impossible. That's part of the point that he was trying to make to Nicodemus. But secondly, these occurrences, the two that I mentioned, they're rare. They're isolated. They serve the purpose of validating the message of the gospel and the person who brought that message. This, this in part, is really the groundwork that's being laid for the New Testament to validate the authors even beyond the event itself. But lastly, the last reason, and I think this is the primary reason, Jesus is establishing his right to speak authoritatively. That's the purpose of that point. The point is not that he ascended to heaven. The purpose, the point is that his origin is from heaven. His origin is from heaven. He descended from heaven. No one can claim that. No one but Jesus. A few have died, gone to heaven, returned to earth, and ascended back. But no one can claim to have originated from heaven other than Christ himself. And that's exactly his point. No one can speak with the authority that comes from heaven other than Jesus. Not Nicodemus, not the Pharisees, not anyone. That's the point he's making. Now, up to this point, Jesus has given Nicodemus the bad news, hasn't he? He's told Nicodemus, your righteousness can't save you. Your religion can't save you. You, you have to come to Christ as spiritually bankrupt. That's the message Jesus is communicating to Nicodemus. But beginning in verse 14, the emphasis changes. Because instead of continuing now with the bad news, he begins to tell him the good news, the gospel. This is the gospel. He says in verse 14, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, as he lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes, whoever believes, he says, Jews, Gentiles, Pharisees, Nicodemus, whoever believes in, uh, will in him have eternal life. You remember that story in the Old Testament? The story about the serpent that Moses put a serpent on a pole? It's found in Numbers chapter 21. And here's how the story goes. In verse 5, it says this. The people spoke against God and Moses. And they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, there is no water, and we loathe this miserable food. They were sinning against God, weren't they? God had provided food for them, and they weren't satisfied. And then verse 6 says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. That's a fleshing out of the wages of sin, isn't it? The wages of sin is death, and in this case it was physical death, instantaneous, because of their sin. And then verse 7, So the people came to Moses and they said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that we may... That, that he may remove the serpents from us. And so Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. Now just as a side note, I don't know if you picked up on this, did you notice that it was fiery serpents that judged the people, but it was also a fiery serpent that saved them? Jesus said in the Gospels, he said it was the Father who has committed all judgment to the Son. And yet it's also the Son who was sent to save the world. Paul says in Romans 3, In the forbearance of God, he has passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So Jesus is both just, the judge, and the justifier at the same time. 
And then it says in Numbers 21, concluding that section, and Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on the standard and it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Well, the, the point of the illustration is obvious, isn't it? I think it is. Jesus was the one to be lifted up on the pole, so to speak. This is the analogy that he's making. And all who look to him by faith alone are saved. That's the point that he's, that he's making. That's the analogy that he's drawing. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Unfortunately, Nicodemus hasn't made the connection. But the cost of regeneration in verses 1 through 11 is the death of Jesus in verses 14 and 15. Justice must be served. Verse 14, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's no other way. There's no other way. The pathway to heaven must go through the cross. In Matthew 16, this is what's recorded. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and must be killed and be raised up on the third day. This was a painful road. This is what's called the, the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the path that Jesus took as he carried his own cross to Golgotha. This was necessary. He had to do it. But you know what? He wanted to do it. He wanted to do it. The writer of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and get this, it pleased the Father as well. For God so loved the world. It pleased the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Now, the question often comes up in this verse, what does it mean to believe? What exactly does that mean? Does it mean to believe some facts about who Jesus is? To believe some truths about him? That Jesus was a good man? That Jesus was uh, a, a great teacher? Maybe even the best of all teachers? Well, Nicodemus believed that. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that. Mormons believe that. Muslims believe that. Catholics believe that. Does that mean they're all good to go? Does that mean they need to just pack their bags for heaven? Well, I don't think anyone in here would agree with that. So what does it mean then to believe? Well, let me just state this as simply as I can. Number one, it means this. It is believing that Jesus is God in human flesh, uncreated, eternally existent Son of God. Secondly, it means believing that Jesus is the one and only mediator between God and man. And just to make this clear, Mary plays no role in this, nor does anyone else. And thirdly, it is believing what Jesus says about himself and about you and me. Now, we could go into a lot more detail about what it means to believe, but that's a pretty good summary, I think. Volumes have been written and preached on this verse, and in some cases, preached on one or two words from this verse. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to attempt to do that in any kind of detail. Maybe some other time, but not now. But for today, that's not the purpose. Even so, though, I do want to make a few points from it. So what I want to do is just look at a few of the words that, that are mentioned here. And the first one that we encounter is loved. God so loved. Now that's a familiar word to all of us. The Greek is agapao, right? We get our word agape from that. And through the years, scholars have attempted to define and to describe its meaning. But in order to understand the depth of this kind of love, you need only to look at the gift. At the gift. Is there a better gift? The gift is Christ. Paul describes Christ as an indescribable gift. 
There are no words to describe the gift. And if there are no words to describe the gift, then there are no words to describe the love of the giver. God so loved, he says. But then he says, the world. Now that word also has been the source of debates for years. What does it mean? What does it mean? Does it mean all people groups without exception? Or does it mean all people without exception or distinction? It's a very non-specific word, I'll tell you that. The word is cosmos. It can simply mean just the world in general. It can mean the world order. For example, Jesus says, do not love the world, the cosmos, and the things of it. That's the world order. But here it's used very um, generically to describe the world that humans inhabit. God loves his creation. God loves the creatures that he's created. Now, not all in exactly the same way, but he loves his creation. Not in a salvific love for everyone. He's not teaching universalism here. That's why the, that's why the word whoever is in there. The gift is for whoever what? Believes. It's for whoever believes. Jesus didn't die for whoever. Jesus died for whoever believes. That's specific. That's specific. His death and payment for sin was not a general one. It was a specific one. It was a particular death. He didn't die for everyone, but for everyone who believes. And since Jesus was face to face with Nicodemus, he was applying that to Nicodemus. He was appealing to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was given a a bona fide offer of salvation. The only requirement was to believe in Christ, to believe in him. God sent his son in the world that through faith in Christ, man would be redeemed. That was the mission of Jesus. That was the message of Jesus to Nicodemus. Jesus didn't come to judge. He says that. That would happen at the second coming. Verse 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says in Luke, I've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And by the way, Jesus didn't come to save the Jews and condemn the Gentiles. He came for the world. God so loved the world, Jews and Gentiles alike, but not to judge, but to save, to save. And then in the remaining verses of this text, Jesus, he summarizes. He summarizes the results of those who believe, and he summarizes the results of those who reject. Well, what about those who believe? Well, this is a very short, a very pithy statement, he says. He's already explained this. Simply stated, he says in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He's not judged. He says in verse 21, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought by God. And so if you're a believer, then your deeds, your good works, your life is a manifestation that God is in you. The Spirit of God has regenerated your heart. You have new desires. You have new longings. You have a new master. You're no longer under the tyranny of the devil anymore. God is working in you and through you. You have been saved by grace through faith. For the purpose, God has created good works for you and I to do. This is the manifestation that has been wrought in God, he says. But for those who reject, he says this, you have been judged already. You're dead men walking is what you are. Because you didn't believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You didn't believe in me, Jesus says. These are dead men walking. Judgment is coming This is self-judgment. This is self-imposed judgment. God hasn't judged you. You've judged yourself. You've proved yourself guilty. In what way? Well, Jesus says you love your sin more than you love Christ. 
That's what verse 19 says. This is the judgment that men loved the darkness rather than the light. You hate light. You love darkness because in darkness no one sees. Your sins are hidden. Cockroaches don't come out in the day. They come out at night because they can't be seen. Now, Jesus, he has said a lot in this text. So let me just see if I can give us some application points here. Three of them in particular. First one is this. To the Christian, in witnessing to the lost, it is better to deal with heart issues rather than spewing out facts about Jesus. Here's what I mean. If a person is a known drunkard or a thief or an adulterer or a homosexual, addressing those issues never gets to the heart issue. It never does. You may actually get that person to see the wrong of a particular sin, and you might even get that person to turn from that sin, but they are no more saved than they were when that conversation started. Why? Because you didn't deal with the heart. It's a heart issue. It's not external obedience. That's the real problem. Their heart is wicked. Their intents are evil. Reforming behavior has no effect on that. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus at the start of the conversation, you must be born again. In the end, you have to address that issue. You might as well just get it out there. Secondly, to the unbeliever, you can't plan to be saved at a more convenient time. You can't decide that. Regeneration is a work of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is on God's terms and God's timetable. And so to the believer, to the unbeliever, my word to you is this. Today is the day of salvation. You may never see tomorrow, but you have today. You have this moment right now. In Acts chapter 24, Paul is witnessing to Felix. And Felix is described as having a more exact knowledge about the way. But listen to the words here. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness and self-control and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and he said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I'll summon you. Come back another time, Paul. I don't have time for this today. Too convicting. Come back another time. Festus was never converted. In Acts 25, the next chapter, Paul is witnessing to King Agrippa. Paul says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, In a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. Same thing. Go away. Go away for now. Come back another time. Maybe later I'll hear that. Maybe I'll become a Christian some other time. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whatever, that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. King Agrippa was never converted. To the unbeliever, in the sound of my voice, come to Christ. Believe in his person. Believe in his work. Believe in his word. Don't wait another moment. And then thirdly, to the Christian again. When witnessing to the lost, remind yourself, remind yourself that these truths that you share are not just your truths. Jesus says this, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The psalmist says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And so listen, the words that you share are not just your thoughts. The writers and the prophets from the Old Testament, they believed it. The disciples believed it. The apostles believed it. Jesus believed it, and he suffered, and he died for it. 
You are surrounded, as Hebrews says, by a great cloud of witnesses. You're not a Lone Ranger Christian. You are going with the word that those before us went with as well. Christian friend, when you witness about your salvation to someone, when you share the scriptures, listen, you go with all the authority of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clear word from Christ about the way to heaven. The simple but difficult way. The simple way is believe in Christ. Be born again. Place your faith, your trust, your life in the hands of Christ. And yet to be born again, humanly speaking, is impossible. And so to those here who are outside of Christ, I would say surrender to him. Lord, convict their hearts. Cause them to see their spiritual bankruptcy. To come to Christ with nothing to offer. And then, Lord, for us as Christians, use this text today to empower us to be faithful witnesses for Jesus, knowing that we don't speak of our own authority. We speak from the one who descended from heaven, the one who has all authority, all authority given to him. We speak with that kind of authority. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do the work of converting and regenerating those we have conversations with? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.secondbaptist-mtv.com or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.